Hello, everybody. This is Noah, and welcome to Change Talk, a podcast where I have conversations with people who are thinking about change and are open to talking about it. In this week's episode, I speak with Clint Adams. Clint is a former police officer and qualified counselor from Australia. He has a long background in human resources for many companies in Australia and has developed various behavioral and leadership programs to help people deal with various issues from PTSD to bullying and harassment. Clint recently wrote a book on suicide prevention and mental health called Lighting the Blue Flame. Clint came on to Change Talk to discuss with me ways that he can better value his own work so that he can become comfortable with getting paid to provide his unique value. And while we have you here, if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. This can make a huge difference in expanding Change Talk's reach. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating to our tip jar, which can be found by following the link at the bottom of our show notes. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. And may Clint's Change Talk, in some small way, inspire your own. Please note that this podcast is not therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Change Talk. I am here with Clint Adams. Who are you and where are you from? Uh, my name is Clint Adams. I, I live in Australia. But you're 15 hours ahead, so it's it's weird because I'm clearly in Tuesday evening right now, and, and you're in yep. Wednesday morning. Um, Correct. I've, had, I've already had breakfast and, and yeah. ready to go. <laughs> and I haven't had dinner, so this is it's, it's an interesting yeah. thing. This time zone Absolutely. stuff is weird. I, I, because time is completely made up. This whole thing is completely made up. Yeah, it's hard to describe, isn't it? And it's funny because the Earth's around too. Like certain countries up the top there, they, they like have, you know, a six-month day or something, which is kind of even more bizarre to comprehend. Um, if we think about it too deeply, it will go will go crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, very true. But welcome to, uh, to the virtual world where we're in the same time, at least. Um, thank, thank you so you, much Noah. for coming on. So tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, from a career perspective, I was always interested in psychology. I wanted to do forensic psych, uh, psychology when I um, was at high school and, you know, Silence of the Lambs and those kinds of movies were out and, and very big on profiling and that, and, and that really interested me. So I ended up, if I go right back, degree in psychology and pharmacology, kind of edging my bets on doing psych, but also whether I do psych as a you know, psychiatrist kind of giving medication and all that stuff. So that was my studies going to university. And then um, the way it was set up here in Australia, we, we have probably different police departments to America and Canada. Um, ours are run by the state. So you work for basically Victoria is one of the states here in Australia. And, and I, I um, joined Victoria Police uh, with the intent of going into one of those squads that dealt with the psych side of stuff, forensic psych. So it wasn't true forensics as it is now, but back then, and this is in the 90s, um, you know, it was a little bit different. So I joined the police force, became a true cop, like you would be on the beat doing any other kind of stuff and, and worked my way up through the police force. But unfortunately, after about five or six years, 
things changed with how the, the um, organisation dealt with their forensic psychology, so they actually outsourced that. So I couldn't actually do it as a cop. I had to leave, become a psychologist and go and work. And that wasn't feasible for me. So the other thing I was really interested in was actually true counselling, you know, dealing one-on-one like your traditional counselling, dealing with people with issues and PTSD and all that stuff. So I actually did some more studies in um, rehabilitation counselling with uh, Sydney University. I was still a cop at the time, but I was doing, um, you know, flying up, and back to Sydney. Sydney was the only place in Australia that did it at that stage. So then I got really interested into dealing with the counselling side and I decided I wanted to try, cut my teeth on on true counselling, working for an organisation outside of the police force. So I left the police, went and worked for a company that um, dealt with rehabilitation. People had significantly physical injuries, but also um, the, the, the psychological scars and, and, and how they dealt with it was also a part of, of what I would help them with. So I, I did that for a period, but then word got around that um, me, the ex-cop, uh, was working for this company and then the police at the time, they, they had also outsourced this rehabilitation service and so they kept calling me in to help the police officers um, to, to deal with their PTSD, to deal with whatever other issues they were dealing with. So I was getting a hell of a lot of work from the police, even though I was working for a private company. So eventually they approached me and said, look, why don't you come and head this up for us, run, run this with us? It was very new to the police force at the time. No one was actually doing it within the, the actual force. So I kind of was one of the first to, to really get into the injury management rehabilitation space with the police. And I became a counsellor within the police started running up some of the health and safety kind of aspects back then. And then over time, I just got, you know, right into dealing with people, working with um, that PTSD and, and helping police officers. Then I kind of got dragged into HR. I won't go and bore you with that details, but I got dragged into HR for the police, um, which also gave me exposure to dealing with groups rather than just individuals. Obviously, with counselling, as you can appreciate, they're one-on-one generally. So this kind of gave me um, a lot of insight around dealing with groups, dealing with leadership, dealing with people. I had a really good friend who was also a an organisational psychologist. He taught me a lot through the process because we had a lot of issues in certain stations. And so it was all, all that change management kind of work. So that gave me exposure to those things. Then on top of that, I also started working and doing... Um, uh, programs for the police where we looked at, you know, we were having, I'm sure they have it everywhere, but um, we were having some issues where the police were heavy handed or, or maybe overstepping the mark uh, with the amount of force being used and stuff like that. And so part of me getting involved in that was around how we help them tactically disengage, how we, you know, obviously when you're in that moment of, you know, someone's a threat to you, but then they de-escalate, they're no longer a threat, they keep going, you got to try and break how that do you down. Deal with that? And, Slow down exactly absolutely so a big part of that kind of gave me a lot of interest into wanting to develop programs and then I, I kind of I ended up leaving the police force went into HR um, working with other companies and then the, the leadership and that development I kind of started doing more and more programs on that working with teams working with developing their leadership but then also um, health and well-being started to creep in a lot more with with what we were doing back in the day, they didn't really focus on mental health all that much. It was all about health and safety, you know, not you know killing yourself and wearing high-vis clothing and all, all those things, goggles, all the stuff that come with those. But mental health was was very little was done and probably still is a lot less than, than what we probably should. But it was kind of pretty new to me. So I started running sessions for our teams. I used to call it Red Brain and Blue Brain. I still run a version of that now. I've, I've improved it over the years and so, it's always been aimed at helping um, 
the teams that I worked with to kind of understand themselves a bit better in terms of their psychology, how they interact with others, and then how that obviously affects the group, how they work together. But then what I was finding, a lot of them were also, um, after I'd run the sessions, a lot of them would come up to me and say, hey, you know, um, my daughter's struggling at home with whatever it is, bullying and that kind of stuff. Can you maybe talk to her as, as the HR manager, but, you know, almost as a friend to go and talk to them. So I'd help them with those kinds of things because obviously, you know, you employ lots of people, but when they go home, they're still your employee and they're still, you know, whatever's happening at home, if it's bad, will, will affect how they work and what they're concentrating on. So I kind of got really into looking into how it can help kids a lot more. Um, and then over time, I ended up in a role which was in healthcare. And this kind of was where a lot of things kicked off, probably where I am now and, and the changes I'm trying to make with myself. Um, I was working in a, in a healthcare organisation. I was one of the executive teams. So I had access to a lot of the board's information around, you know, what the hospital, it was a hospital and, and lots of community little hospitals all around the place. And um, <clears throat> the statistics I would see was, was horrifying to see, you know, 11 and 12 year old kids on antidepressants or being treated for, you know, attempted suicide issues and, and that kind of stuff. And so the more I dug into it, the more I realised, you know, the, 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 a lot of these kids are um, from disadvantaged homes. Obviously, when I've been a police officer, I've been in those houses and I've seen, you know, the parents who are maybe drug-affected individuals and they're not looking after their kids. And you think, this poor kid doesn't stand a chance, you know, they're not you know, they're going to need something amazing to get out of this kind of rut or I'll be here in 15 years' time and they'll be just like mum and dad. And so, you know, those kinds of things always kind of stuck in my head. And when I was seeing these statistics and thinking of these kids, and this is in a low socioeconomic area, um, it was just horrifying to me. So I started to really put some stuff together around what I could do to maybe help some schools with some school programs. I put some stuff together and, and based on the psych side, but also based on what teachers could do to kind of help these kids and, and what I would see with the adults, obviously when I'm dealing with adults at the work level, they've all been kids, we've all been kids. So, you know, a lot of those um, mental health issues or, or um, just issues in general kind of stay with you because you don't necessarily know what patterns of thinking you've had and all that kind of stuff. So long story short, I um, did the school program. Unfortunately, at the time, there, was, there wasn't the right way to get funding for it. You're talking to some, you know, politicians rather than people who are subject matter experts in this. And so they have their own agendas. So I shelved that for a while. And then I decided to write a book, which is a story around a person who's committing suicide, but he kind of wants people to know, um, you know, who was responsible. He wants the people who were responsible to know that he knows and that he wants to see things change. He doesn't want vengeance or anything. He really wants things to change so it doesn't happen to some other kid in the future. And so I basically dragged my school program in because I'm a character in the book as myself, actually helping the school with something else. But at the time of the suicide, they kind of involved me to help them with, A, deal with the suicide, the child's the trauma, the grief, you know, all that stuff. And then on top of that, then work on change management of the school, of how they can try and prevent this happening in the future. And so um, for the last 12 months, I've kind of, so my book came out last year. What a great year that was, you know, 2020. I wasn't able to kind of do, do much uh, in promoting it. But anyway, that's another story. So it came out last year and, and I had the intention of, um, you know, speaking to schools and, and doing some stuff. I had things in place to do last year, but with COVID, that kind of got shelved until this year. So the intent, <coughs> excuse me, is to really focus on, the programs that I run, 
but at the same time, it's all kind of new. I've, I've left a, a fairly good high paying job to, to take this on this last 12 months. And that's where I'm at at the moment. The book's out at the moment. So the book's actually called Lighting the Blue Flame. It's a fictitious person, but it is based on a, on a lot of um, conversations I've had with people who have tried to bully, uh, tried to, to suicide and, and also people that have, you know, um, had to go through a suicide of their own child or, or someone close to them and, and how that's affected them. So there's a large part of the grief stuff is, is stuff that I've dealt with using my, you know, um, I guess, counselling sessions with people over the years and, and dealing with how they've dealt with a lot of those things. Like it's, it's amazing when you when you go into the psychology of it in, in another, um, in a broader tense, you know, you can see how a lot of things work against you when you get into that spiral. Shame and, and, and guilt and all that stuff are, are very real emotions that can be highly um, negative if you let it be. And so, you know, a big part of this process and, and even the book, as society, and, and, you know, I'm talking probably as an Australian and a Western society, and then look, in, and I know in some other cultures it's, it's quite similar, um, you know, the, the, they will use fear and, and shame people for lots of things. And so mental health is one of those things, you know, people would use derogatory comments about someone who's suffering and they call them all kinds of names. I don't need to cover off what they are, um, but, you know, and so there's always a fear factor. No one wants to be, um, you know, tarnished with that brush and be called things and, and thought of as inferior or anything like that. So, so they keep it to themselves when they struggle and, and kids do it too. There's a recent um, one here in Brisbane where two young students, both independently, two separate ones, but, you know, they're 13, 14 year old, no signs at all. Parents had no idea. And then, you know, the kid takes his bike for a ride and, and, and ends up um, taking his own life, which, you know, and then questions, people go, what, you know? And so a big part of this is about how do we also get people talking about that? Let's communicate. Let's ask our loved ones what's going on. Let's look for signs. Let's think about the impact of our actions on other people. Yeah, definitely. I when I one of the sessions I was supposed to run earlier this year was with a school uh, group, uh, sorry, a sports group, but they're all school school aged teens. Um, was they had a couple of suicides earlier in the year, and um, they wanted me to address the the young players, but I was also of the view that we needed to involve the parents because it's important that the parents understand that the language they use and what they say to their kids and what they should say to their kids in the future helps with them feeling okay to have that conversation. I use something called the dialogue model, which I don't know if you've come across, but the dialogue model essentially talks about when there's a fear factor in someone's head about having a conversation, they either go to silence or they go to violence, just like our fight or flight kind of uh, approach. And so generally speaking, if someone feels fearful, and let's say I'm struggling with mental health and my dad in the past has told me, you know, suck it up, you're a big boy, boys don't cry and all that stuff. I'm not gonna feel comfortable to come out with that because there's a little fear factor in the back of my head that you know dad's gonna have a crack at me for I'm be rejected by by dad it all those things so you know that's just one example and there's multiple examples even in society of that stuff you know people say oh you know don't show anyone weakness and you know it's doggy dog out there and there's all these things that come up with it but also as as um even the way we punish kids or or, or we think we're you know parenting our children is we use fear a lot you know religion uses fear a lot too in terms of rules and you know if this happens you're going to end up in hell and if you know if, even the, our, our laws in the country you know if you speed you're going to get a fine you're going to end up in prison you do the wrong thing it's all 
punishment, punishment, punishment. I'm not I'm using that as an extreme end, but we do little things at home too, you know. If you don't clean up your room, this is going to happen to you. You're going to take the internet away from you. So there's all these negative things that we use and we don't realise that it's slowly drip-feeding fear into some of the kids, especially early on. Not everybody, obviously. Not everyone suicides either. Not everyone gets in a really bad mental health issue. But effectively, they're some of the things that, that we probably unconsciously doing and we don't realise. So part of what I really focus on with parents is about, look, I can't stop, you know, what you've already done parenting-wise, but we can at least give you some advice on being aware of what you're saying, how you're coming across. But the other thing I always say is if you want someone to start talking, you've got to create the safety for it. So if you've been that way as a parent before, how do you create the safety for your child saying, look, no matter whatever happens, you can come to me. I'll, I'm your parent. I will look after you. Don't ever feel afraid. They're the type of conversations that we don't often have exactly in that way but I think it's important for parents to understand that by doing as much as we can create safety will at least give you a better option of them feeling okay I don't really want to go talk to dad that I'm struggling with this stuff but I'm going to and so again you know it's also how you react as a parent if they do come to you you know looking shocked and 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 um and that kind of stuff is probably not the best way to do it because again that fear factor kicks in. So it's kind of fickle when, when the relationship's not there yet. But, you know, as parents, we kind of need to step it up a little bit and, and understand some of those things a lot better. The, the truth is, is in the drastic situations that you're talking about, and, we all, and whether it's from suicide or even in smaller examples where there's a lot of shame and fear to talk to people that we care about, about what we're struggling with, just it, there is a life-saving element, even if the parent just says, I want you to know I'm here. That's a new piece of information. And that could make yep. the difference because one person, if, if this child speaks to one parent or one friend, those people, I don't care how much, and this is 101, you do not skirt when any, any suicide training that anybody does. And I recommend doing a suicide training. I think here we have assist um, suicide training is you never avoid the question and you make sure I don't, that you make sure that there's safety there immediately. So again, we're not talking about suicide prevention right now, but, but in a sense we yeah. are. And one way you do that is to create safety to know that people can speak to you. If you know, if you have, if you become that kind of person to, to in other people's lives and hopefully they'll never need you as the lifeline. But if you are that one person, you can't fix all the problems, but what you can no. do is make sure that if they're going to plan something, the right people need to know their parents need to know. Right. Sometimes you have to get, police there's things that you have to do to get people involved and it's not because you're ratting on but you want to keep people alive um because yeah. a lot of times these people are just in so much pain that they want to end their life it's not that they don't value living it's not that they don't yes. want to be here they just can't handle the pain and so Correct. if you become a lifeline a lifeboat for somebody even if it's just them knowing that you're the kind of person that they can speak to um it could save a life no, you're 100% correct. I mean, I, I run sessions normally with managers on how they can look after their teams. I, I was working for a company that had a lot of farmers out in, in remote areas. So they would have their teams and themselves. They're, they're the only people they see day in, day out, no one else until weekends kind of stuff. So, um, you know, them being able to not only identify um, those things, but also 
understand some of what's happening in a person's brain when they are in that way, that they're, they're actually in survival mode. So blood's draining from their heads into their muscles and body getting ready for fight or flight. And so just asking them questions forces them to answer them using a different part of the brain. So it actually pushes blood back up into their brain. So when I teach them about you know, mental health first aid and that kind of stuff, them at least understanding enough about what's happening in this person's brain while they're feeling this way and what they can do to try and change some of the, the, the physiology in their bodies and their brains. To, so asking someone a high level question where they have to go, oh, okay, I have to think about it. It does need, you know, the, the frontal cortex it's rather like a, than the amygdala. It's, like it's a slowing down of the speed that exactly. happens when we're in the flight and, fight and flight and we're in emotional reactivity. Exactly. And it's the same as that police stuff I was talking about, tactical disengagement. They do exactly the same thing. Is about slowing them down when they're in that state because they're now highly aroused and we've got to calm them down. We're going to get yes. blood back up into that oxygenated. Same thing, same principle. And again, I want to make sure to uh, link the book. Uh, it's going to be in the description. And thank you for sharing a little bit about it. I really hope that uh, that work can have a big impact. And uh, I want to ask sure. you about being a police because I... I I don't know how often I'm going to get to be, be able to speak to police. <laughs> and I think sure. that there's a lot of drama in the world right now about police brutality, about racism and all this stuff. And uh, yeah. I think that it's horrible sure. what's going on yeah. in the world right now. The fact that one person is being murdered with racist uh, overtones, clearly in the situations recently, George Floyd, we see very extreme... Uh -huh situations happening it's it's unspeakable clearly um there's a problem and and everybody's here wanting to address it but i want to ask you first of all what was it like for you to be a police officer um i enjoyed being a police officer i found um i i've had some good experiences through my police career where i've been able to influence people positively um, there's a couple of stories I could mention, but I'll, I won't go into those in too much detail. But in a nutshell, as a police officer, obviously I had an intent to go into a squad, but it gave me a lot of exposure to people in general. And, you know, very rarely do you get called to, to really good things as a cop. It's always negative. You're always dealing with something bad. But but essentially you are dealing with human beings and you, and you kind of, when you see people at their worst, you also can kind of um, understand some of the things that come with it. When people are angry, about whatever it is. Um, you know, I'm a dark-skinned South African living in Australia, um, you know, so there's, there's certainly people that, that have views on, on racism here in Australia. I personally, I, I don't see it any differently. I think when, um, you know, we have that kind of unconscious bias where we, we see stuff that just reconfirms what we think about stuff. I don't necessarily agree with everybody, but then I've never lived the shoes of everybody either. So, you know, it's, it's a tough one because, Anger, and one of the key things that I see is that anger and um, fear, they go hand in hand. And when, when people are in that mode, whatever's caused it, whether it's long-seated racism from their family many, many years ago or that kind of stuff, they lash out. So when you see the looting that happened after the George Floyd stuff, you know, those kinds of things are based around anger and, and it's just you know, they're angry at something, so they take it out on whatever's in front of them. You know, when we're focusing on fear and anger, both parties, you look at that, if, if, if I know the possibility of me arresting somebody and they're likely to have a gun on them, 
there's a big chance I could get killed here. So my head's in what I call red brain. I'm in fight or flight already before I've even arrested this person. In Australia, I you know, worked as a cop for six or seven years. I only had a knife pulled on me once. I had to pull my firearm out twice. Um, whereas, you know, with the police, anybody can have a gun. Here in Australia, we got rid of a lot of guns and, and you know, some people do have them. I'm not saying that there's none out here, but, you know, that's not the first thing you're thinking about when you're arrested. So, yep. so when it comes to you have maybe these unconscious or maybe more blatant uh, perspectives of uh, that are racist in any way, shape or form that the average person yep. may or may not have, but would never get to a place of being revved up like that. Um, uh -huh. Whereas for police officers and, and people that are on high alert, you have, you have a whole combination of things. It's a challenge for police officers because they're highly aroused and they're in a fear mode in and of itself. So yeah. what does that leave somebody when they're in that state? What's going to happen to them when they're in that state automatically? And then you have a person coming into you that could have a gun. Look, the, the, the difficulty is try to keep calm. If, if, you're, if you can keep calm in the situation and, and part of the stuff that I talked about, that tactical disengagement stuff that I talked about earlier, um, when, when we're training the police, see, the, the biggest, when I watched that George Floyd stuff, as horrific as it was, the other thing that really bugged me was there were three or four other officers all within a metre of that. They saw their buddy sitting on this guy's neck. Now, when I teach or when I used to talk about training for the police back in the day, a big part of this is when I'm working with someone else and I can keep calm, I've got to look out for my buddy. I've got to make sure, so hey, he's going down a path here. There's been many times where I felt I was calm, my partner's escalating, someone's getting angrier and angrier and kind of pushing their buttons or whatever, and I've stepped in and said, okay, mate, you, you take a, a back step. I'll deal with this person, and then I can kind of... Because sometimes it's easy when you've got the person right in front of you to really, you know, both of you are at each other, talking, yelling, whatever, um, for the other person to kind of stand back, take stock of the situation and use what I call the blue brain. Because when, when, when I train on this tactical disengagement stuff, it's about getting you to ask questions. Remember I mentioned about asking a person questions when they're struggling. Part of this is internal dialogue too, asking yourself your questions like, why is this person so angry? Even asking that keeps me calm because now I'm keeping my blood from draining down and making me go angry. It's, like, it's the frontal cortex. It's, it's, our, it's almost our conscience sitting over the top going, hmm, this isn't a good situation. And like if we do with young kids, that's not fully formed yet. That's why you find young younger people in the 18s to 25s will do more silly things at that silly. age because they're not... They're impulsive. Exact. And if they're drinking, that's the first part that's shut down too. So all, all these psych stuff and, and neurological stuff and, and physiological stuff, they're all interrelated and understanding a bit more about that can help us with lots of different programs because, you know, we go into these situations, but funny enough... Fear and anger always seems to show up when things go bad. It's high pressure. And look, hopefully, you know, we're not going to get into this. It's a big discussion, you know, systemic issues, non-systemic issues. Um, what's the, all this stuff, we're not going to solve that. And I'm, understand that I don't understand all of this stuff. I know that there's issues sure. way beyond, but regardless of what happens, we can talk about how to yeah. educate people to, to, to reduce racism in communities and to have greater acceptance, understanding, greater um, abilities to interact with people that are different than, each, than, uh, than ourselves. But to me, the biggest issue, when I think about what's going on in the police force and the fact that they are being taken into high levels of arousal, 
which the average yeah. person isn't because they're 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 in life they're fearing how yeah. do we help them regulate how do we help them learn how to deal with high levels of emotional reactivity how do we help them de-escalate internally how do we help them with deep breathing relaxation could we be do, do you think some of the issues that have been going on with you know reactivity and police actions in response um, could be reduced or mitigated with better mental health training within police academies. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, absolutely. Look, th there's definitely two parts to this issue. So there's there's what I call the reactive uh, change management model, where you go, we've got to change what we've got now. So when we're dealing with adults, it's a change management model. I think two things need to happen. We need to be doing more at school level with younger people so that, that impulsivity, that... Um, ability to keep yourself calm, that ability to negotiate using language and discussions. That's why I use the dialogue model as part of it is teaching younger people as they come through the years and if they become cops, if they become, you know, whatever they become, that they can deal with their issues in a different way other than go into violence. What often happens is, especially kids with trauma, this is kind of the, the bad side of it, right, where you kind of go, there tends to be more of crime and certain things like that and, and, you know, not being treated well by parents and that kind of stuff from a lower socioeconomic perspective. And the reason for that is because they're always in survival mode. There's no money to buy stuff. They're on the welfare. They're looking for drugs. I'm not saying all of them are, even people that are not drug addicts or anything. But if you're struggling for money and you can't make ends meet, there's pressure and then there's anger and that comes with part and parcel of it. So you, you're at a higher risk. If you add it up as a risk factor perspective, much more risks to it. So part of whatever we're going to do as a society is about looking at how can we minimise those risks? How can we reduce that pressure? And when a child who has got that at high risk um, things in their lives, how can we do things that will help them in their brain space to see that, hey, there's a way forward. There's been lots of people that have had trauma over the years. They've come out the other side way better. They've been amazing leaders in the world, all that stuff. So it can be done, right? And so a big part of that piece, that early piece needs to happen. But your question on, on the actual police, yes, absolutely. I, I know when we were, um, you know, I, I don't think it can hurt anybody to understand more about mental health. And like I said, when I do the first aid of stuff, I'm helping first responders to understand how to deal with this person. Because if they just treat this person as, you know, they're, they're nuts, you know, this person's unhappy, angry, that's all they see. That's the symptom of whatever else they're dealing with. So they don't get to the what they're dealing with. They just go to the, this is what the symptom is. Let's just arrest him, put him on the ground, give him a couple of whacks, and, you know, he's going to comply or she's going to comply. So... We want to get out of that space. We want to kind of go, okay, let's think about this. Why is this person doing it? How do I find that out? Well, I talk to him. I ask him questions. That might actually calm him down, but it also gives me time to assess. If I just go straight into grabbing you, putting you, you go on the ground. You know, and I, from what I understand, especially in the United States, there's not a lot of, they don't, they have a lot of, they have certain trainings that they get to become a cop, but you don't have to yeah. do a lot of mental status. Um, maybe you need to, they need to know that you didn't have a, you know, let's say a psychotic breakdown. And even then doesn't mean you can't be a cop if you, you know, if you're in a, in a stable place, but when you were becoming a cop, how much training did you do, uh, in terms of de-escalation, mental health, um, learning to deal with your emotions, learning to not be so reactive. Did you, did you have any of that? 
I, I did mine in the 90s. Um, I certainly didn't do a lot of that specific training. We trained for six months, but it's based on law and using firearms and using force and understanding all that stuff. There was some elements of understanding mental health or what our powers were under what we call the Mental Health Act here in Australia. So that gives us certain powers that if, you know, you're um, a risk to somebody else, we can actually arrest you. We can't just go arrest anybody, but if you're a threat to someone or you're a threat to yourself, we can use the Mental Health Act to go and actually forcefully restrain you until we call someone in. So there's elements of, of that kind of training. Certainly, um, as I then worked later in the police, we, we did a lot. We used to come, we came up with a, what was it called? It was called Beacon. And, and Beacon was, we had regular training on various aspects to, to recap. And we would do that every six months. We did normal health, some mental health, and I'm sure it's different now. I haven't been involved with the police force for probably the best part of 15 years now, but um, I, I, I understand, you know, look, my, my brother-in-law is an inspector quite high up in, in the police now, and, um, you know, the stuff they do and the way he talks to me about what they do nowadays, you know, they are way more, they're, they're way more diverse. So once when I was still working there, we, we actually changed um, getting more women into the police force because, at incidents, we looked at the actual stats that showed that if a woman was present, it was less likely to escalate into violence than if you had two, two male officers, right? So all these little things add to thinking about not just mental health specifically, but how we, we, we don't have to go straight to force. We don't have to go straight to aggression. You've got options. You can think more calmly. You can talk more. You can use your voice. You can distance yourself. If no one's in any danger, why do you have to rush in there and kick the door down? Why don't you just let them sit there for a few hours till they get a bit tired and talk to them on the phone or, you know, there's, so we, we've done a lot more of that tactical disengagement and I'm talking about, uh, you know, Australian police, so I can't talk about the American versions, but, you know, so so there's, we're learning lots of stuff, uh, we're doing lots of things and I think we can always do more and, and what we probably don't do well is maybe share some of that knowledge um, across countries and, and different uh, police sure. forces and stuff, And you know what I mean? Yeah, so... You know, and just given everything, you know, you're in a different police system, but if you, if you could in some way, shape or form, make a difference into what's going on in the United States, based on all of your wisdom and experience, what do you think you would do? I think the best thing to do is bring the heads of those areas, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter people who are in charge, who are, you know, they, they clearly want to see change. Change will happen. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, whether you do it by violence, uh, two separate things, you, you, you get a lot less. The one thing I love about the dialogue world is when people are talking about the issue and talking about solutions, they're staying in blue brain. When we're talking about let's get them kind of stuff, we're still in red brain. We're still using amygdala-driven fear, anger. Dialogue is the key. Dialogue is the absolute key. Sounds like what you're saying, which would be a huge thing, is to how do we help both individuals in communities, whether those communities are privileged communities, less privileged communities, how, how can they enter into that blue brain as opposed to the red brain, the fight and flight, the intensity, the anger, the high arousal? How can we calm down, slow down, uh, both from, from the, the, in the police academy, if they were able to learn those things? Could you imagine if if people were able to learn that they that they have choices other than to act from their place of anger and fear, uh, we could be, absolutely we could be making a difference. We could be making a difference. And that's so, that's the key. Yeah. What was the most meaningful experience or something that stands out to you that really validated the kind of work that you were doing? 
Um, it was actually around that period where I found out that I wouldn't be able to do the forensic psych stuff. And that's when I started doing some studies with Sydney University. The way we used to have our cell set up, so I work in a fairly large station, a place called Geelong down in Victoria. And anyway, um, they used to have the police station right next to the courtroom and there was a tunnel underneath. So we had cells for people who would get, had to go to court. So they'd bring them into our cells. And if they had court cases, we'd take them to and fro depending on how long the case goes for. Anyway, we used to mainly have males in, in our cells. Every now and again, you'd have one or two women come through. And so obviously we can't keep them together. So they'd be in their own exercise yard with cells out of them, usually house about up to 20 in each of those areas. But on this one occasion, I was in the cells, we used to get three months stints in there. And um, there was this young lady in there. She was a drug addict. She was definitely going to go inside. She'd been in and out of um, you know, kind of the juvie system and, and all that kind of stuff. But this was now she's going to get two or three years and she was kind of waiting for that. Anyway, I, I struck up some conversation with her because the guys, you know, they had other people to talk to. So I talked to her through the door and just talked about stuff. And anyway, you know, um, we talked a bit about that and I kind of started using some of the stuff I'd learned in the counselling course um, just to kind of see if I could help her out kind of stuff. And um, you know, I just talked to her about how she's going to focus. You know, she had a young child, which was obviously taken away from her and her parents had to look after her. She was going in for two, two and a half years or, or whatever it was. And so it was around me just trying to use that and trying to see how do I get her to focus? Because she was obviously focused on, oh, I'm in the crap now, you know, I'm, my life's down the toilet. She's only 23, 24. So about me kind of using, again, trying to get her into what I call now blue brain and really focusing on what can I do to get her there? So I talked to her about focusing on what is it you want to do you know yes you've got this time to think but it'll allow you to get off the drugs you know let's focus on all the positive stuff that you could do the positive um things that you want from your life your life's not over you're going to be in there for a couple of years you've got a very young child and we you know we got talking about that anyway she eventually ended up getting sentenced for about two and a half years and, and i didn't kind of think of her much like and then maybe a year later i was going for a run I saw this person come running out of the side of the house. I looked over and it was actually her. She put on a lot more weight. She used to be a heroin addict, so she'd lost a lot of weight. And, you know, she said, oh, you know, I recognised you because, you know, she said, you remember me? I said, yeah, I do, actually. And she told me, you know, when she went away and ended up in, in prison, she really thought about what we talked about and she decided she was going to focus on how she could get her daughter back, how she could get her life on track and all that. And she said, look... You know, um, she turned it around. She said she was a model citizen. They were able to bring a daughter into a low security prison she got moved into and, and all that kind of stuff. And she was able to do a lot of things. She was living with her parents, which was the house she was at. And, you know, she said just having those conversations with you certainly changed what, what I wanted to do. And that kind of validated a lot of um, the stuff that I instinctively thought I knew, but also how I actually then saw real impact of, of just, you know, and it was only over a couple of days of, or three days of talking to her through the through a little, you know, hole in the wall kind of thing. And, you know, it was, it was powerful for me enough to really go, this is the kind of stuff that I, I want to do and, and that I could see that, um, you know, it has an impact on that. And, and kind of set me on a path of, of doing a lot more work in there, reading a lot more, um, trying different things, working with people, getting feedback on, on sessions. And so, you know, that, that was probably one of the big changes for me. I probably would have still maybe been in the police, maybe doing stuff for them now, but um, I kind of made those choice changes based on, on that one experience. And, and what strikes me across all of what you're talking about, whether it's your work in the police force, whether it's the work in education, whether it's the work with students, and parents and suicidality, all of this stuff 
comes down to this, the importance of the conversation, that conversations can make a difference in people's lives with when you have care and, and love that you're coming from and you're trying to have a conversation with people, um, whether that's a conversation to de-escalate things, whether that's a conversation to, to try and give some hope, whatever it is that you've utilized a conversation, intentional, meaningful, loving conversation to try and in some small way make a difference for people. Sounds like that was sort of the meta the meta thing that's been carrying you um, throughout everything. And it's part of your book as well. Very much so. And um, look, uh, the, the, the difficulty when you're a police officer is time is of the essence. So you want to go in there and problem solve really quickly. So sometimes, you know, you go, I've got another job to get to. So you can't always spend the time as a police officer to do that stuff and really get in to understand the person a bit more. And so, you know, that, that can be difficult um, doing that kind of work. And so I kind of knew I needed to get out of the police force to do the work that I wanted to do. So we do get that time. You do get that opportunity. And when we're dealing with managers, I tell them, go and spend time with your people because, you know, being on the floor, interacting with them, you're creating dialogue you're having conversations about stuff they feel comfortable with you you're building trust relationships you get correct it's it's relationships but the other thing too about mental health side is if you know your people really well you go gee clint's not himself today he's normally that happy-go-lucky kind of guy why what's what's not right so i can you know so it's not that big gap between oh, i never talked to that bloke and now i want to suddenly ask him how he is and and that kind of stuff you know what i mean so um the, building familiarity so and and trust and connection so that yeah. uh, the lines of communication are more natural um, in all the types of, of conversations that you might want to have with people. Definitely. So thank you so much for sharing all of what you did and, uh, and the work that you're doing. And we hope uh, to link some of that. I, I personally have an interest both, of course, as, as being involved in student mental health in navigating yeah. these conversations and grateful for everything you shared. So let's move into change talk. Talk to me about something okay. right now that you are thinking about changing making better look it probably goes back a, a little bit but you know even my book as much as i'm passionate about what we've been talking about and and, and really wanting to get out there there's, there's also a lot of self-doubt with doing something like this i've worked in pretty high senior management roles um which i'm very comfortable with but then to kind of take something and put it out there that that's open to scrutiny and, and you know you hear these um people who, who put things out there and, and they're just so, like I have real concern. My wife, my wife had to twist my arm, but it took me six years to write the book. So I wrote the book, wrote it, reread it, reread it, all that stuff. And, and in your head, um, I know I talk about fear and anger and, and I'd like to think that I'm a, I'm a more courageous person than I'm probably projecting right now. But, you know, um, I really grapple with um, putting myself out there with the view that, you know, there's way more intelligent people out there I'm talking about brain chemistry and stuff that uh, I've studied to a certain degree and then you've got these subject matter experts who are going to pick this apart because I'm I'm trying to make it so that it's not too high level for for people I'm not writing it for a person with a PhD in psych I'm writing it for Joe bloke and then go and implement stuff and do things so you know I um I really I kind of a lot of self-doubt popped in around that. Obviously, the book came out. I eventually did it, and, and then I, I worried even more about it because, um, you know, it's how people there, would, There's a lot you could be doing that you're probably not doing because... Correct. You want correct. to maybe keep it in some... Be, still be able to hide in some corners. <laughs> it's, that's a good way to put it. So, look, I, I really... I, I, I guess I pushed myself to the point where I went, you know, 
I sat down and I actually went, you know, Clint, what, what do you actually want to do now that the book's out? I wanted to impact more people. I felt that uh, doing one-on-one as a counsellor isn't enough. Whereas with what I wanted to do with the book was really be able to, to touch people, be in front of, you know, cameras and talking, doing stuff like this where people are hearing you. And, 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 and I'm, not, I'm not a shy person. I just don't, I don't know, I find that, you know, I have to grapple with my own fear a little bit about even doing stuff like this where I'm, I'm talking about, it. I, I kind of know I know it, but I'm also concerned that, you know, people go, oh, he's talking a heap of crap. What does he know about this? And, and that plays in my head. I, I teach this stuff in a leadership kind of environment, but now I have to kind of really, um, you know, walk the walk rather than just talk the talk kind of stuff. And so for me, you know, I've given up. I, I was in a, you know, like I said, senior management roles. I haven't looked for a senior management role because I, I'm really conscious that I've got to push myself to um to overcome those doubts, overcome those fears about what I want to do. Well, like, you know, I want to, I feel like we're having a very meta conversation in the sense that you are practicing putting it out there right now as you're talking about how you're not putting it out there. Because um, <laughs> you're, you, you know, just from my perspective, you know, obviously, first of all, that you're being articulate, you're well-spoken, you've been doing a lot. So we're, you know, we can all be impressed with Clint, you know, we can be impressed. Clint knows how to speak, you know, you know, so that's that, you know, you can, you can pull it off. Right. Um, and sure. uh, obviously everybody, we all have insecurities and self-doubt that's coming up. And it seems like there's a part of it that is, is the more that you are focused, not on Clint as the leader, Clint as the teacher that, um, you know, that you've been in very familiar roles. Um, those are yeah. easy for you. Those are easy games. But when, you have to be vulnerable through what you're doing. So writing a book is a very vulnerable experience because people can look at it and say, that was a terrible book. I don't like it. And you're useless yep. and, and worthless. And you're, you're, you're in the ring, as they say, there's that quote. About <laughs> people in the, yes. You can't be criticized if you're not, you know, you're putting yourself out there. Right. So yep. first of all, talk to me about an example recently where you, you wanted to put yourself out there. You maybe wanted to, in, in reach out to a few people, send your book to certain places, meet with certain people, but the self-doubt stories came in. Apart from the book, obviously, launching, um, there's been times where I've, I've thought, you know, I've got to, well, originally I was intending to launch the book and have, you know, public kind of things people could come to, get invitation, and, and, and I'd do a talk on it. Um, I had to change a lot of that. So even the way I interact with people on um LinkedIn, I don't see myself as a salesperson. So kind of pitching things and, and um, you know, I, I feel like I'm imposing if I say, hey, I've got this book, I'm doing this stuff, come look at what I'm doing. And so I find that really hard to do. Um, and whether that's, you know, my background of, um, you know, always being, I was taught the British way, I guess, is, you know, good manners, treating people, you know, don't go pushing yourself on people. So there's an element of, of me uh, promoting myself that doesn't sit that well with me. And so I, I find that very difficult. Um, we got this bigger idea that, you know, there's things that you want to be doing that you're not necessarily doing to the fullest extent. You've obviously written this book, but maybe yeah. you're only putting in 70% effort because there's all this fear that's coming up and insecurity and self-doubt. But from what I understand, by the way, I met you through LinkedIn. You sent me a message um, through LinkedIn. I, I think I found you or maybe added you, whatever it is. 
So you, you actually did do that. Um, I did do that. I did do that. And, and, um, and did you feel, yeah. like, did you feel like it's an awkward thing to do? It's like, it, it makes you cringe. Like it's just, you know, it, it kind of does. It's not my thing. I've, I've had some people who've, who've actually reacted quite negatively to really? what, I, not, 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 what, 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 what's like the worst thing that people have said, aside from what you've said to yourself. One particular guy was like, Oh, I don't like the fact that you, you know, you, you just connected with me and, and you've sent me this, kind of spiel so for the people that don't know the one i would have sent you was hi i'm clint i'm a police officer i work in counseling my passion is suicide prevention and you know here's a couple of links of some interviews i did and, and i run programs and if anyone's interested i'm willing to work on that so that's kind of a basic spiel i send out and this guy was was um was critical of the fact that I, that i did it that way and um I said, look, I understand. My, my reply was, you know, he's less said, you know, I like to build a relationship with people, blah, 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 blah. And so um, that actually, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I don't want. But at the same time, I thought, look, I'll give him the kudos of, of you know, at least giving me that feedback where rather than someone, you know, saying it at the back of their heads and, and not actually interacting with me. So I went back to him and said, look, you know, I understand and, and, you know, you don't have to do anything with this. I'm not asking you to do anything if you don't like it. You can ignore it and, you know, I'm not trying to sell you a book. There's nothing in there about selling you the book. I'm just saying I have written a book, but I also have passion in, in this stuff. And I'm actually, for me, it's more about connecting with people that also do that kind of stuff and see where it goes. Like a lot of it's been exploration and conversations like what we're having and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we had a to and fro a few times and he kind of understood because he said, oh, you know, I don't think that's the most effective way. I said, well, I'm just going to give you some information. I said, prior to me starting doing this particular method, I used to just try and connect with people. And I said, I had, I don't know, 2,000 connections. I said, I'm now up to about 14,000 um, in six months. And so I said, you know, I know that there's probably a few people like you that aren't going to like it, but then there's obviously a lot. And I said, I've, since then, I've also been on podcasts. I've been on radio. I've had invitations to be on TV, which is coming up in the not too distant future. And I've also been um, a speaker on, on a number of platforms for suicide prevention. So I said, as much as, you know, that, that methodology might work with you. And then I still, it still doesn't sit well with me to do that. It's not my thing, but I, I, I have been able to, like you say, push through that and, and understand that, you know, um, yeah, lots of people, if no one knows what I'm about or how, how do I promote myself if you don't know about me, if you don't know anything about me, I've got to put myself there. I've got to do these things. Before we had LinkedIn, before we had emails and reaching out to people, you had to maybe go to offices. Like, I mean, there's no magical thing where you just meet people. You had to make an effort. And today it's Correct. easier than ever. It might be saturated, but it's easier than ever. I probably used to be a bit more cherry picking before I'm getting better at that and looking at it and going, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Like there was a couple when I look back now of people that have had me on their shows who one particular guy is uh, a very well-known psychiatrist has been on Ted talks and all this stuff. He was fantastic. I had I was blown away that a, he would even tick the connection. And then, you know, the fact that he responded so favorably had me on his podcast. Um, he'd, done similar things on TED Talk, like what I'm talking about right now. And, you know, he's way more, um, you know, been in the industry, been around a long time, well-respected. I'm just this guy who rocks up and he's done a book this year. So, you know, not many people know me. But the fact that, you know, talking to him, hearing his 
um, story himself, even this is prior to the actual podcast, we had a nice good dialogue to find out, you know, if it's something that would work for what he wanted. And um, that also gave me a lot of insight um, around, I can not, I can find, hang in there with the big boys, but, you know, it, he, he got a lot out of it and he was quite impressed by stuff that I brought up, which is slightly different to, to what he had. And for me, there's many ways to the top of the mountain. And I think the more people I interact with, um, I kind of look at it now as, it's a learning experience for me as well as if they want to do something with it. I don't know if I'll ever get rid of that whole, oh, just like, you know, I, I still, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if I had to walk up to someone and say, hey, yeah, you want to buy my book? I don't know. <laughs> I'd see myself doing that. But so, so that sort of, feeling, right? What, when you don't, so when that comes up and you kind of crawl back into your shell, how does that benefit your life? Why does it make it better when you get to hide? What, what, what makes that better? I think the benefit is you can't stuff it up. So if, if you can't be judged, then you can't be judged. So, you know, it's like, um, like it's always instilled in me as a young child, like to always look your best. You have to wear the best. I can't just walk down the street in tattery old clothes. My mum would have a fit, right? Now I'm nearly 50 and I still have, my wife still laughs like this. Some days I, I cringe if she's like, oh, you're doing it. Because I, I, I know I do it. Um, and so she'll laugh at me and say, oh, how come, you You know, why are you getting changed to go walk down to the supermarket? You know, and I was like, yeah, okay, you got me. <laughs> and so it's, it's an undercurrent that we we kind of develop. And, and a lot of things I put in the book is around how we develop undercurrents. And, you know, um, that, that's maybe not the worst one, you know, trying to be impeccably dressed isn't probably the worst thing. But, you know, the, the, there's some things that we do, like I, I acknowledge that, um, you know. You get to hide. That's what this is about. One of the reasons why it's when you get that yeah. feeling inside of you, that uncomfortability of, you know, you're being, you're, you're sort of naked to the world or whatever, is that you're <laughs> going to be scrutinized correct, and, and criticized. And so if you get to hide and not share your book with other people and not put yourself out there, you, you get to stay away from the negative uh, feedback that you may be getting. Correct. But what happens uh, when you don't hide in the shell, when you when you fight through it by interacting differently, when you make that reach out? What happens to you? How, how does it make your life better? Well, for me, um, you know, if I just focus on, on how the books come about and, and the feedback I've had from people, yes, I've had some negative feedback and, and some constructive feedback, if you want to call that. On more of my methodology, I haven't had too much on the book itself in terms of feedback. The ones that have given me feedback has been positively received. I've had, you know, people that kind of have been using it almost as a guide for social work stuff because there's some, there's quite some significant initiatives around what they can do at a school level, what they can do with adults. And so I've had feedback of people that are using those things in groups, group therapy stuff. I've had conversations with people and I've, I've talked them through my methods. I've used it in... Um, working with managers in, in doing mental health first aid. So, you know, those have been really positively received. And then the benefits of fighting through that sort of uncomfortability is that opportunities are coming about when you're putting yourself. Oh, absolutely. The opportunities are coming about. It's also giving me, because I'm at, if I, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't get any feedback because nobody's seeing it. So, um, so, so, so the feedback I'm getting is actually saying to me, hey, it's a bit like me and the woman in the prison, in the cells. If I didn't get that feedback, I wouldn't have known it had that impact. Whether I do this now, I have no idea. That was life-changing for what I chose to do after that. Um, 
So I, I kind of get also that um, the more I'm interacting with people through this process and the fact that I've done that, I've put the book out there, they've either looked at the book or liked the idea of the book or then they've seen a podcast or something that's come out of that and then that's driven them to interact, have a conversation. So for me, the positive is twofold. One, I'm getting the message out, which is what I wanted to happen and I want to hopefully say have a view that you know people will get something from the book and go wow this could help somebody else and then they tack on that and, and improve on that like like any other thing that, that goes out but when you do it you are giving yourself more opportunities you're also getting feedback so you mentioned putting yourself out there means you get feedback meaning i can be better i can learn how to make Correct. this better i can and also so opportunities feedback and the feedback of knowing that you're making a difference and i would say even more than all of that that you've been saying is yeah, I'm having the fear, but but th- I really want to do this. This is a part of who I want to be in the world. This is important to me. This is what I, uh, part of what I perceive my my value to be in this world is to be able to share this story and to get it out there. And so by facing that fear, that uncomfortable feeling, you're living out who you want to be. Look, I don't think I could have said it any better, actually. I think you hit it right on the head for me. Um, a year ago, like this time last year, I still had that doubts. I knew the book was coming out in Feb, um, and and I wasn't I wasn't anywhere near that. I, I I did have some, you know, good look in the mirror and say, well, what do you want to do? And I kind of planned a lot of this stuff. For me, the plans changed. The confidence has changed. Um, I've definitely got much more energy to do the stuff that I want to. Whereas before, when I was writing a book, it's like I, I think I was stalling myself to not finish the book, and and that was you know my wife would kind of tell me off for it because uh, and looking back um you know she was a one that kind of gave me the last kick up the, the ass to go and do something and get it done like you know you cracked on about this book for years you know your stuff really well finish the damn book get it out there and again you're you're working in great ways towards towards this and i'm wondering you know for the purposes of this conversation if there's any one piece of movement decision um that you want to do that's that sort of speaks in the face of that feeling of uncomfortability is there one thing that you've been putting off doing um because of that vague sense of fear and uh, fear of judgment and fear of criticism is there anything small that you want to do um to move the needle yeah look i think of i haven't directly gone to companies and organizations and and uh i've done everything by email so I, that, that is a different, like I said, I have that cringe, like, oh, what's this person going to be like? To actually, um, let's say door knock, but if you want to put a spin on it, you know, go and door knock and talk to companies and, and, and eyeball people and talk to them, say, hey, this is where I run, this is how I do it. So I kind of think I'm still hiding behind the keyboard, even though I'm putting my name there and I'm there. What would, what would be different than what you've been doing? So let's say everything's a bit of a, a door, um, a, you know, an email or whatever, but is there, is there yeah. something like, is there people maybe not just on LinkedIn, but there's like an organization, like you're saying, or a company that you could actually call a phone number or like, you know, email that person directly and actually say like, say, let, like, let's meet as opposed to here's some of my stuff, which is like, take it. Um, but don't take it if you don't <laughs> want it. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, there's probably an element of that. So there's definitely some people I've already met on LinkedIn that I've had conversations with, but I haven't gone out there and said, hey, I've got this idea and this is something that I can do directly for you. Um, Like I haven't put anything out there to ask for you give me some money to do this or that. I haven't done any of that stuff. I think I read in uh, one of Tony Robbins' books where he talks about, you know, feeling comfortable enough to to get paid for what you do. I, I still haven't got there yet. So that could be that a makes step sense. for you right now is to oh, maybe yeah. do some some more direct reaches that reach outs that are not sort of like, yeah. here's my thing, but I'm going to move back a little bit. I know I see you do this. Are you interested in any of any of my services? You know, I provide value I, in these ways. I do presentations about these things. Here's some of my stuff. Do you want to meet and see if there's opportunities? Like sort of that more, like Correct. more Sales-y spotlight pitch. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's it. That that that's my next um, that's my next move. Um, I'm planning to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, are you able to make a commitment in some way, shape, or form that that you'll yep. that you'll start to do some bigger reaches? Um, Absolutely. That, that, that require you to not just share the info, but say, hey, do you want to do something about this to, together? Yep. Is that something you Definitely. think you could do? Absolutely. I will commit to it. A hopeful commitment to make, to, to do, can, you've been already doing it a lot. You've already written the yeah. book. You've been making preliminary reaches out. You're coming on a podcast like this. You met the psychiatrist, <laughs> do these things. But then there's that next level of like, you know, I'm worth something yeah. and, uh, and I'm going to do it. Yep. Okay. I'm in. I'll, I'll, I'll commit. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing. I mean, this is probably uh, on the interview part. I, I, I think I, uh, people are going to, there's a lot to learn about and, and then you coming on and talking about this very human thing that people do. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. Um, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're, you're welcome. And it was a pleasure to speak with you. Don't forget to follow us on social media to keep updated on all our content. We are at Change Talk Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Change Talk Pod on Twitter. Editing for this podcast is done by the lovely Atara Shields Tile. Music and theme song by Hope and Social in their album Yorkshire Electric EP with the song People Change.